Well, hello again, everybody. This is Christian Bassard, your host, as always. And uh, today we'll be going into the Cold War again. And this time we'll be talking about anti-ballistic missile defense systems, uh, specifically about Ronald Reagan's SDI initiative, or the Strategic Defense Initiative, uh, also known as the Star Wars program. So we'll be going into a little, some of the rationales, some of the challenges, and uh, some of the reactions both within the United States and outside. And so let's get right into it. During the Cold War, the idea of an anti-ballistic missile, or ABM system, became articulated in two main programs, the short-lived Safeguard Program of 1969-70 and President Ronald Reagan's Strategic Defense Initiative, or Star Wars. It was hoped that these systems would completely shield America against enemy ballistic missiles, thus giving it a great advantage in the nuclear-armed world. Unfortunately for President Ronald Reagan and other ABM advocates, missile defense turned out to be a rather complicated matter. Though the desire for a defensive system was understandable, it brought forth numerous questions on both the domestic and foreign fronts. In this episode, after giving background on the strategic factors involved in creating an ABM system, we will attempt to answer the following question. What were the policy considerations resulting from the United States' proposed ABM systems? And how were these systems different from existing nuclear weapons? To answer this question, we will look at some sources from the 1980s themselves, written in articles and opinions and so on. First, let's go into some historical background leading up to the anti-ballistic missile defense debate. Nazi Germany's defeat in 1945 had given both the United States and the Soviet Union access to German missile technology, thanks to the Third Reich's research into and use of such weapons as the V-2 rocket. By the 1950s, the threat of nuclear war was looming, and both the Americans and the Soviet Union started developing early ABM systems at this time. A decade later, on August 6, 1969, funding for the Safeguard ABM system was passed in the U.S. Senate. But this program was short-lived, as Republican President Richard Nixon decided to use it as a bargaining chip with the Soviet Union to achieve detente and arms reduction. In 1972, two treaties redefined the nuclear arms race, Strategic Arms Limitation Talks, SALT, and the Anti-Ballistic Missile, or ABM treaties. The ABM Treaty reduced the number of interceptor missiles available to both sides, and it restricted their deployment to only one missile base and the capital. Four years after the ABM Treaty, Safeguard's funding was cut to save money, and besides, there were concerns about its effectiveness in the first place. This changed when fellow Republican President Ronald Reagan announced the Strategic Defense Initiative, SDI, on March 23, 1983. He wanted a system created that would, in the words of Rebecca Slayton, quote, make the Soviet weapons obsolete. Reagan, being a staunch anti-communist as well, saw a refocus on ballistic missile defense as an urgent counter against the Soviet Union, especially since Nixon's previous detente and resulting demobilization. The United States had many justifiable reasons for developing an ABM system. The first and most obvious reason was that missile defense was meant to prevent the country's very destruction. If such a system worked perfectly, no American citizen would have to ever fear a Soviet missile attack. Roger Handberg suggests a second reason. He argues that participation in World War II gave American leaders an increased sense of responsibility on the world stage. Being practically the only power that could challenge the Soviet Union in a new post-war international order, the United States took up a more active role, especially when the Soviet Union gained political control in Eastern Europe. 
Due to America's increased role in the world, the country needed to be ready for the next big conflict and to protect its allies. This, in turn, led to an increased demand for advanced military technology, including ABM systems. Also, during the Cold War period, military aircraft and intercontinental ballistic missiles, IBCBMs, greatly decreased the distance and time factors in defensive planning, making an ABM system more urgent. Finally, missile defense was a magic bullet, so to speak, that would theoretically offer a complete military solution. With this solution, the United States would be militarily supreme, safe from any missile attack and still able to attack with its own weapons. But if only as such a magic bullet could work in real life as on paper or in the imagination. When conceptualizing such a perfect system, a very important question must be asked. Is it technically possible? First, there's the problem of hitting one missile with another. Though a 1955 computer simulation said this was possible, Roger Hanberg says that the prospect of intercepting a missile moving at speeds of 5 kilometers or more per second was daunting, to put it mildly. This would be possible only with automated computers. I mean, simple enough. Computers are behind all kinds of military equipment today anyway. But secondly, the ICBM technology was fa progressing faster than ABM research. Further, even with a national ABM platform in place, Soviet offenses could be upgraded to render it less effective. In the 1980s, Soviet experts said that they could develop countermeasures against Reagan's proposed SDI systems at much cheaper cost than the Americans would spend on their defenses. They argued that in the race for technological military superiority, attack weapons inevitably improve to the point that defenses are useless. This is the whole rationale behind the modern concept of hypervelocity weapons. If you can attack with a weapon so fast that your enemy's defenses are too slow, it doesn't matter what countermeasures he has. According to the science.org website, hypervelocity missiles are those that can exceed Mach 5, five times the speed of sound. Although normal ICBMs reach such speeds as they re-enter the planet's atmosphere, their flight paths are predictable, making them easier to intercept. That's the whole point. Ballistic missiles. It's a ballistic course, right? Hypervelocity weapons, though, can maneuver to avoid anti-missile defenses. This is a purported advantage of the Russian-made Kinjal, or Dagger, missile, which can reportedly reach Mach 10, 10 times the speed of sound. The fact that this projectile is maneuverable and launched from an airplane makes it harder to intercept and predict what its target may be. So it's clear that an ABM system would not necessarily be a magic bullet. Even if a missile defense grid was 99% effective, that might allow one missile to slip through, and this would be enough to devastate the American target. From a 1984 article in the Foreign Affairs magazine, quote, even a 95% kill rate, quote, against missiles, would be insufficient to save either society from disintegration in the event of a general nuclear war. To make another point, even if a missile shield would never let a single missile through, it would not pose a threat against bombers or cruise missiles since it would likely have to strike high-angle flight ballistic missiles during their flight. However, it should be noted that in warfare, one system is never enough anyway. Enemy bombers could be counted, countered with effective anti-air defenses and interceptors, which should be a normal part of your armed forces in any case, ABM system or not. A final limitation on ABM defenses is that they would be useless against a terrorist-deployed warhead detonated on site in the United States. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how much this was a concern during the Cold War. I know it was definitely in the post-9-11 era where the idea was that a terrorist could take a dirty bomb and blow it up in a city, but I'm not sure if uh, this was a concern in the Cold War. I haven't, I haven't seen that. At least I don't remember hearing anything like that. But anyway... 
and uh, a guy with a suitcase is going to have no problem with an ABM system. During the Reagan era, a few solutions were proposed to address ABM's technical problems. His SDI program started from scratch with brand new technologies and even suggested using laser beams to destroy incoming missiles, hence the nickname Star Wars. SDI's attempt to fix ABM's problems demonstrated a concept called technological optimism. This optimism suggested that no matter what technical difficulties may currently exist in the development of an ABM system, they will eventually be overcome with time, resources, knowledge, and even perceived Western technological superiority. So even if ABM was at present unfeasible, it was considered wise to pursue it because a worthwhile system would eventually, quote-unquote, come into being. It might have been politically risky to commit such great resources or hedge bets on such an unproven and difficult-to-deploy system. But national security was at stake, so it would not be necessarily wise to simply dismiss a defensive system either. Yet technological optimism could not prevent significant questions from being asked on the domestic front. Because ABM is a purely theoretical concept, it was untestable in a real-world context, and this would force policymakers to operate on assumptions, tests, and predictions. It would be very difficult to, quote, get the kinks out of such a system because there would be no real test data. Ashton Carter, an MIT professor who worked on the physics of ABM for the Pentagon, suggested in a contemporary analysis that a perfect defense system was so unrealistic that, quote, it should not serve as the basis of public expectation or national policy about ballistic missile defense. According to a September 1984 New York Times review of this analysis, Pentagon officials attacked Carter's assessment for supposed errors and, quote, pessimism. By the way, in case you're wondering, this Ashton Carter is the very same man who became Barack Obama's defense secretary from 2015 to 2017. The question arose whether it was good to expend great resources on such a theoretical project. Emphasizing how the ABM debate has continued into the post-Cold War era, Bertolt Hurlin wrote in 2005 about what he called the fifth stage of ABM development in the post-9-11 era. Herland suggested that it would be better to spend such resources on defending against actual real threats, in his words. In 2005, terrorism was considered the greater threat, which ABM, as I mentioned earlier, would not be useful in countering. Back in the 1960s, the cost of ABM development distracted budgets from the expensive Vietnam War and domestic concerns such as the Great Society program. The Sentinel, later dubbed Safeguard System, was shut down again because it was not cost-effective. And after all, it never became necessary to actually use a missile defense system during the Cold War. Thank goodness. I suppose one could argue it would have been better to think about an ABM system and never have to use it, rather than not think about it and then need it. The issue of ABM defense was also a politically divisive one. Initially, this was not so, for in the 1940s and 50s, politically neutral scientists, including J. Robert Oppenheimer, who was in charge of the Manhattan Project, gave it their support, this idea of a defense system. But by the mid-1960s, there emerged the concept of mutual assured destruction, or MAD. MAD was a rather pessimistic concept which said that the Americans and the Soviet Union would easily destroy each other if a nuclear war started between them. This, quote, balance of terror became an interesting de deterring factor, for it scared both sides from firing the first shot. ABM would have disrupted the stabilizing balance. This would become a foreign policy issue as well, which we will discuss later. After MAD came into the fore, ABM came to be identified with American conservatives. 
When Republican President Reagan announced the SDI program, this solidified conservative support for missile defense. ABM remained a largely conservative-supported initiative even after the Cold War. The future Republican Bush presidents would both champion it, although the so-called rogue states, North Korea and Iran, rather than the now non-existent Soviet Union, became the principal threats. George W. Bush even scrapped the 1972 ABM treaty with Russia, which had banned national defense systems, and he had ABM launchers set up at Fort Greeley, Alaska. During the 2012 presidential election, Republican Mitt Romney supported ABM, which opposed Democrat Barack Obama's desire to be, quote, flexible, or appease, according to some, with Russia, who, like the Soviet Union, were very concerned about missile def American missile defense. The issue of missile defense systems being deployed in Europe has been a major sore spot in Russian-Western relations in the post-Cold War era. Going back to the 1980s, ABM caused a stir among academics as well. We just saw that some scientists supported it in its initial stages, but Rebecca Slayton notes that by 1985, missile defense had divided scientists down the middle. Some studies on the subject were technologically optimistic, while others suggested it was unfeasible. The optimists said that the opposite side produced erroneous and quote-unquote politically biased reports. Ashton Carter's experience was an example of this divide. Worse yet, critics of missile defense felt that it put their academic independence under threat. The SDI office announced a scientific project dubbed the IST program in March 1985. Slayton writes that only a small portion would be going to universities from this project, but, quote, scientists were already concerned about an increased reliance upon military funding and corresponding restrictions on academic freedom, end quote. This was especially because James Ionson, the program's director, said that he was trying to, quote, trying to sell something to Congress and wanted academic stamps of approval. He also said that any research in the program would not be peer-reviewed because the IST office would be the peer. Two students from the Cornell Faculty of Science and Engineering, David Wright and Elizabeth Grunland, decided to boycott the SDI by refusing related funds. They were concerned that the defense system was an, quote, unworkable plan, and because the research would likely at some point become classified, this was feared to subject academia to government control. They were also concerned about ethics, afraid that SDI research would legitimize the government's pursuit of a project that would spark a dangerous arms race. This boycott was indicative of the prickly relationship between academia and the Department of Defense in the era of Star Wars. Writing in 1985, Ivers Peterson noted that more than 10% of federal funds given to universities were military-related. The government insisted that the funds were for unclassified research purposes only and that it did not want universities to change their stru structures or practices. Yet, as already shown, some scientists took moral issue with the researching for, quote, weapons they consider ill-conceived and dangerous. This created a conundrum for the government. The Soviet Union had already been using their scientific community for weapons development, which would, of course, force the Americans to do the same. Yet, Richard N. Pearl, the Assistant Secretary of Defense at the time, himself admitted that tension arose, quote, between the desire to foster open scientific communication in a free and democratic society, end quote, and the need for military-specific research. Now on to foreign policy. When Ronald Reagan became president in 1981, he brought an aggressive anti-communist policy into the White House, and this showed in his plans for missile defense. Not satisfied with merely mutually assured destruction as a deterrent, he wanted a complete defensive solution. When he presented the SDI, he advocated destroying any incoming missiles, not merely retaliating to strikes. He asked, 
would it not be better to save lives than to revenge them? Ballistic missile defense was a game changer, and it would inevitably force serious questions to be raised on the world stage. As mentioned earlier, the Soviet leadership was very concerned about the Star Wars defense plan. The idea of an American missile shield upset them for a few reasons, even though they, like some Americans, felt that it was unfeasible. Firstly, it would have given the Americans a first strike capability, which completely stopped MAD from preventing a first-time nuclear weapons use. The Soviet General Secretary, Mikhail Gorbachev, accused the Americans of deceiving their Soviet rivals. He said that the U.S. was talking about defense, but they were really, quote, preparing for attack and increasing their nuclear stockpile while publicly proclaiming nuclear arms control. If Gorbachev's accusations were true, the Americans were simply biding their time to build up their offensive nuclear arms, and then they could strike the Soviet Union with impunity, as the Star Wars shield would nullify any retaliatory strike, in theory, of course. The Soviet chief of the general staff, Marshal Sergei Akromayev, said that the Star Wars purpose was to, quote, deprive the Soviet Union of the capability for a retaliatory strike. The Soviet Union was obviously and understandably afraid of this perceived American plan to achieve absolute nuclear superiority. Interestingly, a missile defense system might encourage the potential victim to launch the first strike. In their game model of a nuclear war, Stephen Brahms and D. Mark Kilgore said in 1988 that, the, that a missile defense system could encourage either side to launch a preemptive military nuclear strike in a crisis. We have already seen how a defended country would have the advantage, and that country might be tempted to destroy its enemy first without fear of retaliation. But the country without a defense shield might also want to hit first in order to offset this advantage. Nuclear weapons are terrifying, and the idea of being helpless against them without any chance to retaliate makes them even worse. This fear would be magnified if an enemy's defense system was perfected. Any lack of knowledge about the enemy's defenses would make an undefended nation even more nervous, and they would have ample time to strike first while a defensive system was slowly being developed. Missile defense thus had a potentially destabilizing effect. It would have made the current deterrent, mutually assured destruction, a useless relic. MAD embodied the Soviet view of deterrence in which both sides were equally armed. The Soviet side saw nuclear parity as essential to both controlling arms proliferation and use, and since the mid-1960s, MAD had been the paradigm for nuclear arms control. The Soviet Union was concerned about this paradigm being replaced with a new defensive paradigm which could have made the United States theoretically invincible. So, ABM not only potentially nullified MAD from the American perspective, but also from the Soviet side. <laughs> it should be noted, just like anything that there's a flip side to this argument as well. Missile defense could actually act as a deterrent. It could make belligerents doubt the possibility of a first strike, fulfilling its purpose of protecting a country and, ironically, quote, helping and hurting deterrents at the same time. Missile defense could make an enemy think twice, even if it weren't completely reliable. However, missile defense's deterrence effect would be most effective if both sides had access to such systems. So it becomes another level of deterrence, not MAD, but another level of deterrence like both MAD and missile defense, right? Another Soviet concern was that the SDI would spark an arms race. Whenever a new weapon is introduced to a country's arsenal, it is, it is inevitable that rival nations will try to develop opposing arms to counter it. Defenses would be upgraded to counter the improved offensive weapon, and so on. 
Contemporary Soviet military experts admitted that arms races were an innate part and unavoidable law of warfare. In February 1985, a Soviet officer, Colonel V. Chernshev, quoted by Mary Fitzgerald in 1987, said that an American defense shield would, quote, lead only to an expansion of the arms race according to the law, action generates counteraction. But in the Soviet view, arms races would end with offensive weapons being far more effective than any defense, as we said before. Thus, if Reagan's SDI were to be developed, it might have initially provided some defenses against offensive nuclear missiles, but the Soviet side would be forced to respond by developing new offensive weapons of their own. Eventually, the attack weapons would be improved, being able to get past the missile shield. The advantage might then switch back to the defensive arm, but eventually the offensive weapons would get so advanced that the SDI would be made moot, just like Reagan wanted to do to the offensive weapons. This not only made a missile defense plan useless from the very beginning, but it would make the world situation more dangerous by encouraging the creation of ever more effective and deadly offensive weapons. Worse yet, the Soviet Union was afraid of the arms race being moved beyond the atmosphere and into space. This could potentially occur because space would be the ideal location for some components of a missile shield. For example, Ground-based radar systems would not provide much warning, forcing the use of all-seeing satellite warning systems to detect Soviet launches. This would bring up the prospect of direct attacks on enemy satellites, and space would be the best place to, de to deploy lasers and energy beams, the proposed Star Wars system's interceptors. Moving the Cold War into space would have had many worrisome consequences. It could have caused Soviet-American rivalries to be played out above the Earth, where anyone could be caught in the crossfire. This raised the issue of international safety and the violation of peaceful, neutral space. If a Soviet missile were intercepted or destroyed above the atmosphere, debris would likely fall to the Earth's surface. There would also certainly be remains floating in space, adding to the old problem of space junk. Debris from the oldest space launches were still in Earth's orbit during the 1980s, and this space junk could greatly hinder future projects in space. Any missile interception would create more space junk, which was already an international safety issue. Thus, the SDI, if used in a real situation, would affect nations other than the belligerents in a nuclear war. Roger Hanberg used the landmine analogy to describe the situation. Even after a nuclear war ended, space junk resulting from it would pose a threat to any spacecraft in the area, even those of neutral countries. Assuming, of course, anyone was still launching spacecraft after a nuclear conflict. Additionally, it would be crucial to score a direct hit upon an incoming ballistic missile. Achieving this would be like trying to shoot a bullet with another bullet. Thus, an area of effect solution would be necessary, which would be most likely if the intercepting missile was itself nuclear. The problems with this are fairly obvious. While a direct hit solution may create space junk, this would not necessarily affect the Earth's surface itself all that much. But if a nuclear missile intercepted another, an atomic explosion would be inevitable. Handberg cautioned that not only would the resultant electric electromagnetic pulse, or EMP, disrupt military communications, the explosion could cause great harm to people on the surface, perhaps even the United States or one of its allies. This would be, in his words, a perverse outcome for a defensive system. With the militarization of space, Soviet leaders were scared that the United States would achieve complete supremacy, quote, in all spheres, according to Mary Fitzgerald. They also feared that the Americans would directly target the Soviet Union with space-borne weapons. Not only would missile defense give the Americans first-strike capability with no fear of retaliation, its space components might, the USSR feared, allow them to attack anywhere from above. After all, quoting from John Wilkinson and his co-authors in 1985, 
power would be held by whichever country controlled space. This brings us to yet another problem with the SDI. It's legality. The Soviet side mentioned this in their protests. In 1985, the Soviet defense minister, Marshal Sergei Sokolov, reminded all of Article 5 of the ABM Treaty, which had been signed during Nixon's detente in 1972. This part of the treaty banned the development of a, quote, space-based ABM system. The previously mentioned Soviet official, Marshal Sergei Akhromeyev, the chief of the general staff, made the same accusation and suggested that the Americans were trying to do away with the treaty. As previously mentioned, George W. Bush would later do this very thing. Even more important was Article 1 of the ABM Agreement, which forbade the creation of national defense systems in the first place. Again, it did, however, allow the signatories to build each build two missile shields, one to protect the national capital and the other to be built at a missile site. In 1974, after changes allowed only one shield per nation, the Americans defended a missile site and the Soviets kept a shield to protect Moscow. The ABM Treaty sort of protected the Soviet Union from becoming technologically backwards in, uh, in an arms race. The fear was that the Soviet Union would lose such a, a race for technology. Its resources were already strained, and an SDI-induced arms race would only cause more economic stress. But the ABM agreement gave other advantages to the Soviet side. It, theoretically, prevented the Americans from building a national defense system, allowing the communist superpower to rely on their ballistic missile infrastructure. The United States was also ahead of the Soviet Union in missile defense technology. The ABM Treaty would help address this uh, imbalance in favor of the Soviet Union. There were other foreign opponents of American plans for the SDI. In the United States, there were European pacifist and anti-nuclear weapon movements, such as the United Kingdom's campaign for nuclear disarmament. In an article printed in 1985, Marie-France Garaud gave a more complicated reason for opposing the SDI. She suggested that if the Americans and the Soviet Union developed missile defenses, nuclear missiles would of course become less valuable. Smaller, less advanced nuclear-armed nations such as France would, e would become even weaker. They would have to spend more to increase their less effective nuclear arsenal, and deterrence would not protect them as it did before. Unlike the faraway United States, Western Europe would become more vulnerable to a conventional Soviet attack because it would not be able to retaliate with a nuclear counterstrike. Finally, she thought that an American missile defense would be developed without regards to Europe, dividing the NATO alliance. She feared that the Soviet Union would use this to threaten non-communist Europe. I suppose one counter to this argument, if she's fearing that nuclear weapons become less, less uh, valuable, less useful, let's say the Soviet Union decided to attack Western Europe with a conventional military attack, and then... France wanted to use the nukes, but they couldn't because of the missile defense systems. The problem is with that argument, I suppose, would be would the ABM, would the Soviet ABM system go beyond, would it follow the army? That that would be one question I might have. But if France, like let's say the Soviet Union took all of West Germany and, the, and France decided to use a nuclear weapon against a Soviet uh, army in Germany... Maybe maybe ABM wouldn't be so effective there either, right? On the other side of the world, there were many Australians who had similar concerns about the SDI that the Soviet leadership had. On March 15, 1985, Defense Minister Kim Beasley cited two common worries, the high cost and the start of an arms race. He, like Marie-France Girard said about Western Europe, said that Star Wars might protect the United States, but not Australia. 
Australians were also afraid of disrupting MAD and the subversion of the ABM Treaty. This was despite the fact that the Australian military still participated in joint exercises with the Americans and that Beasley felt America should, quote, at least match Soviet's defense systems that were being developed. But John Wilkinson suggested that many in Europe, in fact, supported missile defense. Yes, the high costs of the SDI program were staggering. At that time, the projected cost of the program was going to be $26 billion by the end of, 19, of the 1980s. But the SDI program would also have given America's European allies industrial opportunities as well as the chance to participate in an advanced technological program. They already had experienced benefits through cooperation with NASA. European SDI backers had strategic reasons for their support. These reasons were outlined in a report written by the Assembly of the Western European Union. In response to the concerns about the U.S. striking first, supporters replied that as a part of NATO, a so-called purely defensive alliance, the Americans were legally obliged to not attack first. They would also be unwise to launch the first strike because, as mentioned previously, no defense system would be completely effective. Thus, mutually assured destruction was still a viable deterrent factor, according to the report. The USSR had simultaneously been expanding its own nuclear arsenal. The SDI system would throw a wrench in this process, forcing the Soviet Union to adapt by building many more missiles or develop countermeasures against the defense shield. Either way, this would cost the Soviet Union a lot of resources. Finally, the SDI would offer a potential political advantage to the United States and NATO. With their economy hurting from arsenal adaptation, Soviet leaders might want to go to the negotiating table. The West could then use the defense shield as a bargaining chip, as did Nixon, offering to sacrifice it in return for reduced Soviet arms. According to this view, using Star Wars as a political tool would offset any of its previously noted technological deficiencies. Robert Gromel suggested in 1987 that this strategy would pr probably lead to a more effective arms control regime than had been previously achieved. Technological optimism allowed European supporters to also make their case. They believed that the Western world was technologically and economically superior to the Soviet Union, which it turned out it was. Although a missile defense shield would be difficult to deploy, supporters had faith that anything could be achieved with their perceived advantages. In the 1960s, the United States was able to land on the moon, something that was once judged impossible for centuries. Citing this, the Assembly of the Western European Union report said that a missile defense shield was, quote, practical and not the science fiction as many believed. Supporters also used arguments of morality and what they saw as common sense. Stating that humanity had made many advanced offensive weapon systems, they argued that the creation of a defensive weapon should not have caused any criticism. There were perceived contradictions in the anti-nuclear and pacifist movements. For example, in the 1950s and 60s, NATO had a more nuclear capability than the Soviet Union, yet pacifist groups were, quote, virtually non-existent during this time, according to John Wilkinson, T.B. Miller, and Marie-France Gerard. Missile defense supporters could have asked, what is the problem then with a purely defensive system? The Western European Union report said the following, quote, It is strange that the proliferation of offensive nuclear systems on the part of the Soviets is so readily accepted by Western Europeans, whereas the construction of a space-based defense by the United States that would diminish the vulnerability of Western Europe to all but short-range ballistic missile attack is so often criticized, end quote. Finally, John Wilkinson noted that Moscow was protected by a missile shield and that Soviet civil defenses had been improved. He mentioned this to suggest that the Soviets were happy to use MAD in its protest over the SDI, but they were also happy to have defensive systems of their own. 
So, the question posed by European supporters of missile defense was very reasonable. Why is missile defense bad compared to the procurement of purely offensive nuclear weapons? Indeed, I can easily understand Reagan's response that it would be better to protect American citizens rather than avenge them. The most obvious difference between a missile defense shield and the missiles themselves is the fact that a shield is, well, defensive. This seems harmless enough. Unfortunately, though, as we examined earlier, the prospect of missile defense brings with it the possibility of a de new defensive offensive arms race, and the effects of this competition would be more far-reaching than other such competitions. For the example, the development of a new infantry body armor would certainly lead to new bullets that could penetrate it. This arms race is localized to the tactical level and thus affects individual soldiers. In contrast, when an arms race deals with nuclear weapons, strategic weapons, the lives of millions are potentially at stake. Such a competition would lead to the creation of brand new offensive nuclear weapons. It would no longer be a simple matter of stockpiling and reaching a certain number of weapons. If a defensive system encouraged the development of more powerful missiles, this would make nuclear war so much more devastating. The defensive factor would also be a consideration in strategic matters, making the situation less predictable at first. Offensive weapons had been rigorously tested in the years after World War II, allowing their effects to be studied in depth. The effectiveness and effects of ballistic missile defense would only truly be observable in a real full-scale nuclear war, forcing military leaders to adapt incredibly quickly if they were even able to survive. This would allow many mistakes to be made because strategic planners would be operating on false assumptions. According to a game model published in 1987, a missile shield would, in the words of Robert Gromel, quote, radically alter the number and types of possible strategic interactions. All these factors would add to the already unpredictable Cold War world of international strategy and politics. And finally, there was the Soviet concern of invulnerability. If a defense did indeed make a country invulnerable to nuclear attack, this would greatly upset the global balance of power. All of these factors, a new arms race, completely changed strategic framework, international safety, legality, and the changes to the balance of power, all show that the idea of anti-ballistic missile defense is a completely different one than simply a new weapon concept. Although an understandable, and perhaps even noble concept, a missile shield had many international consequences that any national leader would have to think through very carefully. So that's the talk of the SDI from and during the 1980s. And ABM has come up sometimes since the Cold War. And now with hypervelocity weapons like the Russian Kinzhal, so this will probably, probably over the next few decades, we'll see a lot more advances or talks or debates about ABM. The idea of a hypervelocity weapon, this is the this is the case again. Hypervelocity weapons are starting to be developed. China and Russia and the United States are are developing these systems. And so it's so the fact that a hypervelocity weapon is is on its way and this will probably be a factor in in warfare in um in a, in a few years. I'm not saying that they'll be used necessarily. Probably, I can't say. But they're at least being developed. They're at least there. Just the fact that ICBMs were never used, were never used in an actual war setting, they were a major factor, right, during the Cold War. So, so hypervelocity weapons are a factor now. They're starting to become a factor. So this will probably lead to more negotiations of, of dealing with arms control and, and so on. So, but we'll see. The point is that when you develop a defensive 
a defensive system, when you propose it, what are the international implications? What are the domestic concerns? What about all of this? And so these questions would uh, would come up. These questions did come up uh, during the 1980s after Ronald Reagan initiated the SDI. So, so there we go. That's the thing. And I think that that's a lesson of life. You can think of something that's very, very good, very, very good, but there will be consequences that maybe you didn't think of and maybe ones you wanted to avoid. I know that in computer programming, there's this idea of a, I believe it's called a regression fault, that if you have a piece of code and you want to fix one problem, you can create a whole host of other problems. So that's what the SDI did. It wanted to solve the problem of missile defense, but it created a whole bunch of other questions and problems, potential problems. All right, so uh, that's another uh, episode here. And uh, we will talk to you next time and hope to talk to you soon. Again, have faith, be well, and take care of each other and yourselves. And have a good one. Bye-bye.